Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Asli Aydin-Tashbash. Asli is an analyst, a writer, and a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Today we're going to look at President Erdogan's positioning in both the Gaza conflict and the Ukraine war. Asli, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here, Bill. Now, Asla, you are in Washington as we speak, so I'm going to ask you right off the top, how do you gauge the, the mood of the Biden administration, given the intensity, the ferocity of the Israeli attack uh, on Gaza? And, you know, we've got these incidents like the bombing of the uh, ambulance uh, convoy uh, coming out of Al Shifra Hospital uh, on Friday. Uh, another refugee camp was hit over the weekend. And of course, there's Secretary of State Blinken bouncing around all over various uh, Arab capitals, trying to get some kind of humanitarian corridor opened up. I mean, what do you think? What's the mood in Washington? And how well is the Biden administration dealing with this human catastrophe? Bill, um, I don't think there is an understanding of how devastating this is for the Middle East and how how much it's hurting U.S. prestige around the world. As you know, after October 7, after the Hamas attack, there was a very strong U.S. support, and that is always to be expected. This is a special relationship, almost an existential relationship whenever Israel is attacked. U.S. is there. It's a structural part of the equation. And uh, I think the interesting part was that this support was a carte blanche of sorts and coming from President Biden, meaning not we support Israel and its right to defend itself, but please be careful about civilian casualties and collateral and human lives. It was like, we support Israel, full stop. So I think that uh, has created an internal debate a few weeks into uh, Israeli Israelis response in Gaza, which of course had a very devastating impact all around the Middle East and, and um, was clearly visible and started an internal conversation here. But still, it was a very cautious conversation. Americans and the Biden administration and President Biden himself did not want to look like he was urging restraint. So the argument was that this is a bear hug. Biden has this, you know, whatever great way of hugging, but whispering. And, and of course, that the people in Gaza saw no reflection of that. All they saw was continued sort of targeting uh, and a situation in which civilians also paid a huge price. There we are a month into this. Uh, now we see the Biden administration trying to restrain Israel behind the scenes, but still very, very gently. And the way they're doing so is leaking stories. And here and there, yesterday, New York Times, oh, you know, U.S. US worried about guns, rifles and other guns to Israel ending up in the hands of settlers, etc. It is too little. 
and too little in terms of having a meaningful impact on the domestic scene in Israel. And I think that you are seeing that, you know, Secretary Blinken is still not able to call for a ceasefire. There's a debate internally within the administration about this, about the fact that, you know, they are paying a huge price globally in terms of public opinion. And also this is having knock-on effects on other issues, such as, you know, the use of China and Russia, the, the, their skillful use of uh, the Gaza conflict as, as in, in their public relations, in their talking points, and also a knock-on effect on, on the war in Ukraine, meaning uh, support for U- the war in Ukraine is in decline. Forget about lining up support for Ukraine and the global south. And if you look at it, it is um, these are all net losses for the U.S., but I don't see a huge understanding of that, nor an impetus to uh, show a bit more energy or, or determination in urging Israel to show restraint. Nobody is talking about a ceasefire. Even the word humanitarian pause, which is used instead of a ceasefire in this country, is 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 used very cautiously so i cannot give you a very uh, good news in terms of managing this conflict show us putting its muscle behind more restraint in terms of israeli actions in gaza or long term prospects for uh, for uh, a political framework in the region there is none of that huge support on the hill congressionally for Israel, uh, particularly with changes in the Republican Party and new leadership. But that ends there and the conversation stops there. And I think that is quite troubling in terms of policy priorities and in terms of helping Israel manage this issue in a way that makes more sense for Israel itself in a way that uh, saves lives, in, in a way that can preserve, you know, U.S. leverage in the Middle East. I see none of that right now. And I feel like yeah. the Biden administration has lost the narrative and they have resigned themselves to that. Mm, yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, the pounding of Gaza City goes on. Let's let's shift back across the Atlantic, if I may, and, and, and I want to have a look at Turkey and President Erdogan. Now, he's previously very strongly condemned Israel for its conduct. How do you, you, you've had a good bang away at Biden administration, but how do you rate Erdogan's response to the war? And, and what sort of impact is he having? Well, Bill, in many ways, Turkey looks very isolated right now, as in it's not invited to be part of the negotiations. It's not really part of the humanitarian chain. It's It was skipped in the first round of diplomacy, but now you had Secretary Blinken visiting Turkey. But I want to get to that and there, uh, why uh, and what Turkey's uh, long-term ambitions might be. I think there's no doubt that Erdogan personally feels very emotional and rather outraged about what's happening in Gaza uh, in terms of the uh, humanitarian toll in terms of the lives and so on. Uh, 
but uh, and it's also the case that uh, he is really feeling a sense of historic responsibility to Palestinians and sees himself as uh, a consequential Sunni leader who cannot abandon uh, the Palestinian issue. But he has made a huge mistake, in my view, by coming out too strong in favor of Hamas, openly calling it a liberation movement. Hamas is not a terrorist organization, he said, it's a liberation movement. Had Turkey been a bit more cautious in the language it used, had President Erdogan done what Arab leaders have done, which is, you know, criticize Israel for its response, but nonetheless also uh, call October 7 for what it was, which is a terrorist attack on uh, Israel and Israelis. It's probably that he would have been more front and center in diplomacy in the region. Instead, he's really alienated, he's really angered Israel and alienated the United States by calling, by sort of owning Hamas. Um, Turkey will always feel sensitive on the Palestinian issue. This predates Erdogan, even, you know, Prime Minister Bülent Ecevit back, I cannot remember when it was, in the 90s when there was a flare-up, late 90s when there was a flare-up in the conflict. He, a secular man, he called it a, a genocide at the time, and it was a huge diplomatic role between Turkey and Israel. So there'll always be sensitivity in Turkey when there's a flare-up in this conflict. The difference is that now Erdogan feels, and he's long felt that Hamas needs to be part of the equation, and I think he's not used a language that makes sense for Turkey to insert itself to diplomacy. Turkey's long-term goals in the region seem to be having a visible role in humanitarian efforts and in the political solution. And to get there, you need a buy-in from Arab states and Western countries, more importantly, United States. And the way to do that is not calling Hamas a liberation movement. He called Hamas in a pro-Palestinian rally on October 28th in Istanbul, massive rally with hundreds of thousands of people organized by the ruling Justice and Development parties called Hamas is not a terrorist organization, they're Mujahideen. So I think that was a line too far. I think President Erdogan is personally outraged Long term, he wants to play a role. He feels very committed to the Palestinian cause, but he also wants access. And the way to get that is not by siding with Hamas. I think Turkish leaders are trying to recalibrate a little bit, but I can tell you that the public seems outraged about what's happening. Anti-Americanism is very high. And it's going to be a while for Turkey to recalibrate to a stance that's similar to Arab regimes, which is Hamas is bad, but Israeli actions cannot be condoned. That fine tuning, that balancing act was missing in Erdogan's initial response. Well, of course, he's got this other war, the Ukraine war, which you mentioned, um, 
and he is in a unique position, really, vis-a-vis Putin, and, and and given the history of of Turkey's geographical situation. Of course, what's happened in Gaza has pushed Ukraine to the sidelines, but but that war goes on. How do you uh, rate uh, Erdogan's managing of his situation vis-a-vis Putin, vis-a-vis the Ukrainians? So I think uh, let's remember something that you and I spoke at this podcast, which is that Erdogan sees it as his mission, as his calling to see Turkey get back to the great power game. He thinks we're already in an age of great power rivalry. And he is the guy who'll go down. He wants to be the guy who'll go down in history as the person who has restarted the rebuilding of the empire, of the Turkish empire. So in a sense, Ukraine war has provided a good opportunity for him to do the the sort of the the type of balancing act between Russia and uh, and the U.S., between NATO and um, the authoritarian league, and increases leverage. He's done this skillfully. Turkey's not at all on with the Western consensus, but works with the West enough to be able to inoculate itself to criticism that might come from the West. That is, trading with Russia, Turkish-Russian trade has tripled, yet selling drones and other equipment to Ukraine, playing both ends of this equation. So... um, I'm not saying this on a, in moral terms because we can debate whether that's the, you know, whether Turkey should have done or that or not, in, in just on the morality of the of the issue. But when it, but if your goal is to increase Turkish leverage, uh, I think to an extent he has done it. But that's not what he's done. To go back to our earlier conversation, that's not what he's doing in Gaza. He's taking a very strong line against Israel and uh, in favor of Hamas that I think isn't exactly the balancing act he traditionally does. That's interesting, Asli, because as you point out, I mean, he has done a, a pretty good finesse in, in the Ukraine situation and and the war there, but he's really stumbled in, in supporting Hamas so so directly. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Brookings Institute's Aslai Adintashpash. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. We have no sponsors and no advertising. Would you like to support that independent voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. I'm also wondering too, just about the uh, domestic situation, because the last time we had you up was just before the election, and he, he got through. It was a close run thing, but he got through. But you know, the issue there, as I suspect it still is now, is the economy. I mean, what shape is the economy in, and and how much of you know this public support for the Palestinians could slip over into protests against Erdogan himself, vis-a-vis the the, the situation of the uh, economy. Well, the economy is terrible, continues to be terrible, and Turkey is scraping by to a little trade with Russia, uh, uh, sort of um, money that's coming in now from Gulf countries, but bits and pieces. But what is missing, the big chunk 
the big gap in the middle is investments from the West. That's what Turkey has traditionally relied on. Turkey is very integrated with European economy and uh, in general global economy. And without a stable relationship with the West and without actually investments, uh, both in the financial sector, but also in, in just sort of brick and mortar into uh, Turkey from Western funds and companies, Turkey cannot survive this forever. So it's muddling through. And that muddling through is going to be a challenge. Uh, he has, uh, Erdogan is always the pragmatist, so he's brought in Somebody, uh, Mehmet Şimşek, former economy czar, now once again the economy czar, someone with, who's known to have orthodox views on the economy, has long criticized Erdogan's eccentric ideas, notions of interest rate versus inflation. So he's trying to bring back a rules-based order into the economic framework. But you have local elections coming up in March. And as you know, elections do matter in Turkey. Uh, despite the country's authoritarian lurch, Erdogan cannot fix elections and he can use pressure and he can build a media uh, information space and shape it and all of that. But on the day of voting, what people say matters. So um, I think that uh, he will have to give up on fiscal discipline until local elections, because people are simply uh, unable to meet with, you know, to, to live by with this level of inflation, which means post-March, once again, Turkey will be facing prospects of balance of payments crisis, higher inflation and currency worries about currency devaluation. So it's a juggling act and one that doesn't look all that good for Erdogan. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that that the domestic issues and and whether his foreign policy approaches are helping or hindering him. Let's look at another uh, theater of war, which is uh, Syria and Iraqi Kurdistan. What's the story there? Because Erdogan has been carrying out strikes on the PPK and and also on the SDF, and and you know there are some thinking now that the Americans are getting ready to pull their admittedly small force out of uh, out of Syria. So what's what's the, can you bring us up to date on that situation? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that it's clear that sooner or later, whether it's Biden administration or a future administration or the second Biden administration or Trump administration, sooner or later, U.S. will start to plan for a pullout from Syria. There's a quiet conversation in this town but a conversation uh, that suggests that uh, U.S. forces in the region, uh, the, the strategic value has now shrank, that it may, it doesn't make sense anymore to keep such a high number of troops in Syria and Iraq and have them be sitting ducks, targets for uh, Iranian attacks and uh, Iranian-backed groups, etc. So a quiet conversation about future uh, withdrawal. And I think Turkey sees this and is interested in essentially continuing on in Syria with the establishment of a security corridor 30 kilometers from their borders. Right now, they have some patches of the Syrian border, 
but uh, but not all. And I think they are they seem to be waiting for their time and using drone attacks to continue to keep up the pressure on Kurdish forces and U.S. forces, but not doing something as big as an incursion. So this actually should be the beginning of a major policy debate on Syria, post-U.S. Syria, what needs to happen, how to stabilize the North and other parts, what about reconstruction, what about the future of U.S. allied forces that had been that had been fighting ISIS what about Syria's co- uh, constitution and any sort of UN backed effort for a political all of those things are even more important today than they were uh, maybe 5 years ago yet you know there's just no bandwidth for that conversation i can tell you for in terms of this town mm. and this is pretty much also true for europe mm. I think people feel so overstretched that nobody has any energy to talk about Syria. Yeah, yeah. But Turkey's game is, to me, looks like waiting it out and continuing to keep pressure on Kurdish forces and waiting for Americans to leave. Yeah, and and then perhaps making a bigger move then. But, you know, we, we, we look around the region and you know, Libya could 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 go up at any moment. No one's talking about Sudan. That <laughs> there's a serious situation. Yemen, of course, is is, is ticking along, and then we've got, you know, this extraordinary situation in Gaza. Well, let let, let me then return to Gaza. I'm just wondering because you talked about Erdogan's ambitions, how he wants to, you know, recreate the uh, the Ottoman Empire how he wants to position himself as a leader, insert himself into the Arab world, really, as a leader. Will he be able to do that, do you think? Or is it the fact, as you said earlier, that, you know, by backing Hamas so strongly, Hamas so strongly, he's, you know, he's blotted his copybook. And also, is there a possibility, because he's worked very hard, hasn't he, to, to restore relations with the Emiratis, with the Saudis. Is it going to be damaged? Is that relationship going to, going to be damaged? I think there's no indication right now that the relationship with uh, the Gulf monarchies, uh, including the sort of newly established ties with UAE and Saudi Arabia, there's no indication that that will be damaged. I think Arab leaders on that front uh, feel maybe that Erdogan is going too far and is trying to steal the thunder, is trying to outshine them. And in many ways he is, by the way. But it's not changing the course. There's still a determination to keep a normalization process with Turkey. And by the way, it's also a, uh, these are also economic decisions for some of the countries involved, both Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, and others are investing heavily in Turkey because guess what? Turkish economy is still offering many opportunities. Turkey is still a good country to invest and a lot that uh, they can um, get, you know, some of the Turkish assets for cheaper. So I think that will continue. There must, there is some annoyance with Erdogan and his support for Hamas. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it's more the case that Erdogan is undermining his own ability to play a bigger role on the, uh, in the Middle East. 
by taking the stance that he is taking. Interestingly, Turkey and Israel have not cut off relations, but there's cold winds and both countries have recalled their ambassadors. And more importantly, I think some people in Turkish bureaucracy understand that ultimately you would need Israel's buy-in for Turkey to play a more visible role, both on the humanitarian issue and if and when uh, there's peacekeeping or other options that are being talked about. If and when Israelis are done with Gaza, there's going to be a, a lot of issues, both on the humanitarian end and in terms of governance. And I think Erdogan, in his mind, is waiting for that time and is thinking uh, that there will need to be more of a significant military power like Turkey that can play a role. But as it is, Israelis don't want Turkey near Gaza. They don't want Turkey near Palestinians. And it's not clear to me that will change anytime soon. We also don't have any visibility on how long the situation will go on like this. How long is the Israeli operation going to go on? What is, going, what is the day after? There's a lot of concern in this town that Israelis don't have proper planning for the day after. And that's probably the case. Turkey's focus should be on the, it seems to be on the long game. At some point, sooner or later, there will be a need for other countries stepping up their efforts and that, and Turkey wants to position itself to be one of these powers. But we're very far from a situation in which we can talk about peacekeeping and so on and so forth with Gaza. Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan has started talking about trusteeship, guarantorship for Gaza, political track, track uh, two-state solution, and so on. But uh, it's clear that Israelis have no appetite right now, no interest in talking about these issues. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, it's clear that Netanyahu is, it is in his interest to prolong this war because of his uh, legal difficulties. And um, the longer it goes on, I suppose, the better he thinks he could uh, survive as, and he is the great survivor, isn't he? It's a story that will continue, uh, just as the, um, I fear that the terrible humanitarian catastrophe that's happening in Gaza will continue for some time yet. Asli, thank you so much for talking with me today. Bill, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, hope to uh, talk in better times. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was the Brookings Institute's Aslai Aydintashvash. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Something of a rarity. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators and writers, contributors like Athlay. Check us out on 
ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.